Welcome back to Fake News with Clarence and Jane. Today's episode is called Doctors Got You Covid. Yep, that was a nerdy pun. <laughs> we were joined by Dr. Eve Anwar, who gave us a primary care perspective on the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, this episode was also a great reminder to be extra grateful to frontline workers all around the world. This includes healthcare professionals and staff, but also everyone who's been working in supermarkets, public transport, restaurants, hawker centers, retail staff, janitorial staff, delivery workers, teachers. Um, I'm sure I'm leaving out lots of people, but basically anyone who's been working to make sure that our lives remain as uninterrupted as possible. Um, so be sure to be extra appreciative if you see one today and see if you can pay it forward by doing something for someone in your life. Um, and with that, let's get started with the episode that was recorded on the 4th of March. So joining us today is Dr. Eve Anwar, who's a primary care doctor with One Care Medical in, in Singapore. Uh, and she's here to give us a primary care perspective on the COVID-19 situation. Uh, so hello, Eve, and uh, it's great that you can join us today. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be on this. Uh, so the first question I have for you is that um, in, in Singapore, one of the approaches to the COVID-19 response has been to deploy these public health preparedness clinics. Uh, so could you explain to us, uh, for our listeners, what a public health preparedness clinic is and um, how it, it's different from a, from a regular GP and what the functions of the public health preparedness clinics are? So. A public health preparedness clinic is essentially a way to consolidate the primary care response to public health issues. Um, and there are a couple of different arms that it's associated with, but it centers around providing medications, providing appropriate vaccinations, and also providing appropriate treatment plans for the public health issue that's been identified. Um, and public health preparedness clinics will also receive extra support from the government in order to be able to carry out these roles to the best of our ability. Um, and you know, it's, it's sort of a multi-level preparedness. We prepare through training um, during peace times. We enforce national policy and we stay up to date um, with new protocols that MOH might set out. And we also assist with collection of data that makes it possible to continue formulating these public health policy policies as we go along. Um, but you know, essentially I would say that Singapore as a whole, uh, whether you are a PHPC clinic or not, has been very unified in producing a primary care response to tackle this COVID-19 situation. Um, and the only difference I would say with PHPC clinics is really that it formally puts into place these protocols and the screenings. Um, and there is a sort of investment by the primary care physicians to make sure that they follow through with these screening and infection control procedures. And. Uh one thing that I, I think listeners might be uh, interested in in the general public is what happens when they come and see their GP, for example, uh, currently if they have fever or they have respiratory symptoms, what, what should they expect from their GP visit? Right. So it's still business as, as usual in our clinics. And I, I would say the only real difference is really sort of um, separation and um, distinct steps to follow in the whole registration and um, beginning process of the consultation. So what they can expect is that most PHPC clinics will have a triage and screening center um, set up and that wouldn't usually be um, present. Um, we've been encouraged to set up triage stations outside the clinic in order to um, control the infection exposure within. 
Um, and so patients who either have flu symptoms or possibly might be a suspect case for COVID-19 are identified right at the outset and set apart from the general population so that we can continue to give them treatment in a more controlled situation. Um, the other difference is that when a patient enters the clinic now, they'll notice that a PHPC clinic has their waiting area divided into those with flu symptoms, um, where we would apply the PHPC um, treatment plans and subsidies. And then we also have a section that is for your general GP population that isn't coming to consult us for either COVID-19 or flu. Um, but you know, in terms of the rest of the workflow, in terms of seeing the doctor, um, and, and receiving your medications, everything remains the same. You'll see that the doctors and staff are gonna be gowned up a little bit more than usual. And so we take steps to make sure that our frontline staff are protected against um, any infection risk. And you'll see them in N95 masks and possibly in protective personal equipment as well. And what are the factors that you take into account when you assess a patient uh, who might be a suspect COVID-19 uh, patient? Like what, what would be um, what, would you take a specific history or do you have specific um, workflow for referrals? Yeah, we do. And um, so it all starts at the screening and triage um, center. Like I said, I think it's of the utmost importance that we work hard to identify these patients right from the outset in order to protect not only our staff, but the rest of the patients who are visiting the clinic. So. Um, in order to be able to identify these cases, we go through a screening form, and the screening form outlines a couple of factors that we would take into consideration. Um, firstly, what are they visiting the clinic for today, um, and whether that encompasses any of the identified flu symptoms or other symptoms that have been tagged as um, PHPC, flu subsidy scheme diagnoses. Um, the second thing that we look for is whether any of the main criteria that have been identified by MOH are being fulfilled by the patient. So for example, with this COVID-19 situation, we would ask every patient whether they have traveled to mainland China, whether they specifically traveled to Hubei, um, and right now whether they visited um, the identified Korean areas, um, Iran or Northern Italy. Um, we also take the extra step of just asking whether they come into contact with anybody from these areas or whether they are part of, or they've had any interaction with people from those positive clusters that have been identified by MOH. Um, we also would do a temperature screening. So the temperature screening is mandatory for everyone entering the clinic, um, both patients and staff. And we also limit the number of visitors. Um, and so this is sort of moving forward. Part of our screening steps also encourage us to take note of any visitors um, that are accompanying the patients in order to be able to do quick and accurate contact tracing if the need arises. And are there any specific challenges that you've faced in managing these, these patients? Um, in managing the patients, I think there's always bound to be a little bit of anxiety and fear um, over such public health crises. Um, and the very first step in managing these patients is really to get that information and encouraging them to be forthcoming and honest with their history. Um, because obviously patients who come in, they um, might be a little bit worried about their risk, um, but they also wonder about the ramifications of admitting to any of these risk factors and what that might mean for you know, the rest of their family as well. Um, so that's one aspect that's been a, a little bit challenging to deal with. Um, 
obviously we've also had to deal with just general public anxiety in terms of patients being a little bit more scared, a little bit more anxious, um, picking up on a lot of things in the waiting area and you know, taking a look at other patients to see whether they might be coughing and whether they might be carrying risk. Um, so that's been one particular challenge. And then we've had the other challenge, which is an internal challenge, um, the challenge to allay fears amongst our own staff and team um, who might be worried about being part of the frontline um, team looking at these patients. Um, and then the adequate training of staff to make sure that all these protocols are adhered to, um, they're followed day in, day out, and that they know each step to follow through if something should happen in the clinic. So those are the main challenges that we've had. And have you noticed an upsurge in consultations for respiratory symptoms or fever? I mean, it's really hard to say because, you know, we know that January and February is generally flu season month as well. Mm. Um, and so around this period, we always do happen to see more patients with, um, with upper respiratory tract infections. I would say on the whole, we haven't really had much more significant patient fall in terms of having URTI symptoms, but we have had more patients come in with concerns about them or questions about them. You know, what if I develop this or what if the colleague sitting next to me has these URTI symptoms? So a lot of it has been public information um, and education. And so one of the things that we know about the kind of COVID-19 is that um, the, the majority of severe patients have had some underlying conditions and other health, uh, health problems. So is there anything specific that you um, tell your, your patients who might be coming in with uh, other conditions? Yeah, um, it's a lot of our work is really about putting COVID-19 in the correct perspective of things and like I said it sort of goes back to making sure patients understand that COVID-19 um, is a current problem but their other underlying comorbidities are going to continue to put them at higher risk whether it be COVID-19 now or you know possibly H1N1 down the road or any other things that come up. Um, we do take a special care to give these people, the more elderly or the more vulnerable um, patient categories, um, more time to digest that information, more time to, to ask the questions they, that they need to about whether they should continue to take their medication, what they should do in case they do come across some URTI symptoms. Um, so a lot of it is about prevention um, counseling for, these, for this group of patients. And one other thing that's come up uh, in Singapore is about this issue of doctor hopping. There's been some uh, COVID-19 patients who've been to several doctors before being diagnosed. Um, do you think this is a, a major issue um, and how, how you think this could be addressed? I think doctor hopping has always been um, an issue and it is an issue that we see in Singapore probably more than we see in other Western countries because Singapore hasn't quite caught on to the habit of having one regular family doctor. And you can see through the contact tracing that this is playing a big part in um, you know, cluster spread and community spread of the disease. Um, and it always poses a challenge in terms of continuity of care. Um, so you know, with one, one of the case, um, the case histories, we had a patient who'd seen two, three, four doctors before being identified as a suspect case. Um, and consequently, what we saw was contact tracing across those four clinics, closures of those clinics for, um, for leave of absences or quarantine um, notices. 
Um, so the problem is larger than just that patient themselves. And you mentioned that Singapore has done quite well in terms of providing a unified um, primary care response to, to COVID-19. Um, do you think there are any lessons to, to be learned from, from the response so far and, and things that might be improved in primary care? I mean, to be honest, you know, it's no big secret that Singapore is being lauded as one of the best countries in terms of their response to COVID-19. Um, and as a primary care physician, it's really hard for me to criticize what has been essentially a very smooth um, rolling out of protocols and a very responsive um, government, government reaction to this um, in terms of travel policies, travel bans, um, giving us updated criteria to follow. Um, all of it has been really good. Um, we experienced some hiccups at the beginning stages of this, and I think in part that wasn't due to issues with the policies and protocols itself, but the natural hiccups that one would have after you know, years of peace and years of not having any public health issues and then suddenly having to face this over the span of one or two weeks. Um, we would love to work with the government more to be able to provide the primary care physician's perspective um, on the workflow and how those protocols can be easily put into place and translated into the setting of a private primary care service. Um, for instance, in the very first um, one or two weeks when we faced an upsurge of patients and a lot of um, uncertainty over what was a suspect case criteria and whether we should be forwarding these cases on to NCID, um, we also found that ambulance transports were severely overloaded um, to the point that waiting times could be as long as three or four hours for an ambulance transfer. Um, and in our case, this meant that we had a patient in our clinic that was a suspect case and needed to stay in clinic potentially for three or four hours waiting for the ambulance. Um, and that severely impacts on our ability to provide care for the other patients in, in the clinic. So I think it's, it's little things like these that um, we can probably continue to work on and we would love to engage um, with policymakers so that not only is there a public health response that is satisfactory in terms of the hospitals and the polyclinics, but that private primary care physicians can continue to play an escalating role um, when it comes to public health preparedness. Yeah, it's really important. Um, and maybe uh, just to end with, uh, are there some key messages that you'd like to convey to the public about COVID-19, perhaps some misconceptions that you become aware of or some uh, general advice in terms of you know, what, what they should do. Um, if they have symptoms, should they stay at home? Should they go and see the, their GP? For me personally, you know, um, as both a parent of two young kids, um, I've been a patient myself, um, I'm a primary care physician, and I'm also involved in the administrative role of um, setting these protocols up in our, our own clinics. Um, the one big take home I would love for everyone to take from this is that how we prepare in this kind of acute crisis should hopefully have some follow-up in terms of how we deal with public health as a whole. You know the changes and the mindsets and the information that have come from this current COVID-19 crisis, I hope will continue to inspire 
more conversation and dialogue on, for instance, how we treat primary care physicians um, and how the public engages primary care physicians um, and encourages the continuity of follow-up. Um, because I think that preparation and peacetime will mean that we're much more prepared to tackle acute situations like this when it happens. Um, and it's also important for the public to understand that being prepared uh, means taking care of your health as a whole. It's not just um, being concerned about COVID-19 symptoms when they happen, but like you mentioned, you know, taking care of your chronic conditions, taking care of your overall health, um, being up to date with the vaccinations that will keep you protected against future um, conditions of worry, um, and just encouraging healthy lifestyles overall is going to do wonders for helping us manage situations that come up later on in the years. And then just one final question. We've been asking people uh, what they found most striking about this epidemic. If there's something in particular they've learned or, or, or found surprising or unexpected. I think what I was um, not expecting was not so much the medical ramifications of this sort of a disease, but the social ramifications of it. Um, you know, and there's been so much dialogue on and on the panic that ensued after um, the Dorskin Orange was raised. You know, um, panic buying. Um, we saw examples of behavior towards certain nationalities. Um, you know, and almost like a xenophobic um, social social response to that. So. That was sort of interesting to see and, and interesting to analyze, but there were also positive things to this, you know, a, an outpouring of um, support and appreciation for healthcare workers at the front line um, and a whole bunch of, you know, community projects that came on board in order to be able to support these frontline healthcare workers better. Mm -hmm. So it's been a lot of interesting social things that have come out from this, um, some that we can learn from and then some that were inspiring to see. And that was what I, I really thought was very different from this experience. Okay, so thank you very much. It's been really informative to have some insights from the public health uh, uh, primary care perspective. Uh, so thank you very much for, for your thoughts. And thank you very much for having me. It's been wonderful to be able to share my experience as both a primary care physician as well as an administrator of this. And that brings us to the end of this episode. If you have any comments or suggestions, please email us. Otherwise, don't forget to subscribe to Fake News to get updates on the latest episodes. In the meantime, remember to keep washing your hands and see you next week. First of all, I'm going to end up eating with my mouth open. <laughs> I feel like i got to work for it. Apparently, this is not like a, this is not a done deal yet. <laughs> no, these are unconditional chocolates. Oh, yes. <laughs> you told me that first. <laughs>